Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Have you used that phrase before? Um, it's usually used for things uh, in situations where some new piece of information totally wrecks your concept of something you thought you knew that you saw in everyday life, and it completely changes the way that you view it. You saw it one way, but now that you've seen it, you can't unsee it. During my last year, back when I was a seminary student here at Asbury, low these many moons ago, um, my car was rear-ended in front of West Jessamine High School, not surprisingly, by a high school student. And after taking stock and realizing that my car was totaled, it became apparent that I was going to need to buy a new car. So I began the task of looking at cars for the first time. When I say I began looking at cars, I mean that very literally. I'd never bought a car before, uh, so before I ever began going to dealerships, I had to begin by looking at the cars that other people drove. In the past, my driving experience had mostly entailed looking at the other cars on the road to avoid hitting them, but since I had no interest in cars except for transportation, I had never really registered much about them. And it's a little embarrassing to admit, but I made it to my late 20s before for the first time looking around and figuring out, okay, that's a Toyota, that's a Lexus, that's a little different, <laughs> that's a Volkswagen, and you can't afford any of them. <laughs> you may think it's strange that somebody could go a quarter of a century without noticing those details, but I had no reason to pay attention, and so I had reserved my brain cells for other things. So before, the cars that I passed on the road um, were just objects passing me or me passing them, but all of a sudden, they had names, makes, models, prices, blue book values, consumer reports, ratings. It was a lot of new information to process at once. And once I bought my new car, uh, a brand new four-door Honda Accord, that was quite the economy car in those days, and I was very proud of it at the time. After I bought my new car, I thought I would go back to the way I was. I thought I could go back to the blissful ignorance of the automotive world I once had, but I couldn't. I would drive down the road, recognizing each car and processing what I knew about it. I wanted to drive past without consciously naming or thinking about cars, just as I had before. I wanted to reclaim those brain cells for use on other things but I couldn't. And there they all were, all labeled with names and facts and probable prices, even though I didn't need to think about that. And it was kind of distracting and a little annoying, actually, this new consciousness. But once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. Buying a car ruined the blissful ignorance of driving for me. Uh, now, I tell you this story for a couple of reasons. One is that you might try to be a little careful in front of West Jessamine High School. Um, the other is this, seminary is going to ruin a lot of things for you. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, but seminary is going to bring up some things that are absolutely going to wreck the worldview that you once had. Actually, it's going to wreck you too, but in a good way, but that's another sermon. You have been cruising through life and faith blissfully unaware of some things, and your time in this community is going to open your eyes in ways that they cannot be closed. Again, you can't just do a drive-by anymore on the reality of God's kingdom. And you'll know this has happened 
when you can't send a greeting card to a friend with Jeremiah 29.11 quoted on it anymore. Um, at least not without the feeling that you need to include a footnote to that card that the people who originally heard the plans God had to prosper them included another 70 years of Babylonian exile. That's quite a signature on a card. <laughs> You'll know this has happened to you when you can't start a scripture reading in church with therefore, as in therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses without pointing out what the therefore is there for. And so you're prone to read the whole chapter before that just to give context. In fact, you'd really like to read the whole chapter before that just to give context too. In fact, why not just read the whole book? <laughs> You'll know this has happened to you because you used to smile at cheesy Christian bumper stickers on the road, but now you find yourself trying to identify the major historical heresy those stickers represent. <laughs> You find yourself driving past people muttering, antinomianist, <laughs> Marcionite, semi-Pelagianist. Makes for a very unusual kind of road rage. <laughs> Seminary is gonna ruin your ability to fill out a medical history without accidentally checking the box for IBS. without realizing they were not, in fact, asking for a prerequisite of inductive Bible study. They were asking if you had any history of irritable bowel syndrome. Seminary is gonna ruin some things for you. And it's gonna ruin you for some things. Uh, case in point, a friend of mine and her husband uh, were on vacation in California when they stopped on a Sunday morning to visit an Episcopal church. My friend is a pastor, so seminary had already ruined for her just visiting at other churches. Has this happened to you yet? It's really hard to sit in a worship service without your mind running 100 miles an hour. Being a person in ministry who visits other churches is like being a backseat driver in every single worship service. When things are going well, your brain is taking notes, storing things for later. You say things like, that'll preach. And by that'll preach, every single one of us means I'm so stealing that and using it in my own sermon. And then when things go wrong in these worship services, you can't help but mentally correct them. It takes a lot of mental energy to turn off your leader brain and become a participant in the pew. And so my friend, who had been wrecked for being a visitor, sat out in the pew, willing herself to just worship and listen and sing and absorb this particular gift. And she was doing that when the priest lost his place in the sermon. Now this happens to all of us from time to time, and we're very sympathetic, we give grace, but it happened more than once in this particular sermon. This service appeared a bit chaotic. She wasn't sure what to think about that. And then during the communion liturgy, the priest lost his place again. And then he lost his place again and again. And he stopped and then he started back up in the wrong spot. And it was such a mess that the congregation actually been, began reading the parts meant for the leader out loud for him just to keep the service going. As that service ended and my friend and her husband collected themselves to leave, a woman from the congregation approached them with words of welcome. And then she added, this line, 
You know, our service isn't usually this disjointed, but our priest has early onset Alzheimer's disease. When he forgets his part, we read it for him until he can join in again. My friend was stunned. What she had assumed was a failure at doing church was actually the church at its best. This church didn't expect perfection of their pastor like a performance. They were loving him through his deepest weakness and struggle, strengthening their voices as his decline. In this instance, the flock was leading the shepherd, and it was a beautiful thing. When I think about her story of that service, I have some very strong feelings that come up. Um, one is that I feel warmed by the sweet nature of that story, how great the body of Christ is, how we'll all come to that place where we falter a lot and need their voices of support. But I also feel very convicted when I hear that story because I know what I would have been thinking if I had visited that day. I know my critical brain would have been on processing what was going on in the worship service. I might have left in a cloud of disappointment and judgment. I don't know that I would have stuck around long enough to realize that what seemed to be a failure at doing church was the church at its best, and that worship with our weaknesses is just as valuable to God, maybe more than worship with our gifts. I'm not sure I would have recognized in that space the great cloud of witnesses speaking up for one voice that could not. That great cloud of witnesses began in that place with just the communion of saints gathered in that room, lifting their voices until this man's voice could come back in, reciting that truth of liturgy until his mind could find its way again. A liturgy is an interesting thing, especially here. Um, every year we have students who begin seminary who don't have much experience with liturgy in their backgrounds. And they wonder, some of them out loud to me, what are these words that we all say together in worship? How can I pray words of a prayer in unison with everybody else, words that don't come spontaneously from my heart? Isn't it inauthentic to pray words that aren't yours? And what if I don't mean it? What if we're saying words of praise and I just don't feel it? Maybe I feel more like lamenting that day. What if we're lamenting and I feel like saying words of praise? And I always let them know that the best news about worship is that it's not about you. It's not just about your feelings or your experience or how you are encountering God today, although those things are very important. The words that you are saying and singing today are not really for you. We say them and sing them because they are true and because we know that our truth reaches the heart of God even as it transforms us. We say them and sing them for those around us who are worshiping with us. They need to hear us say these words that are true because sometimes even the ones here in the room with us have hearts and minds that are struggling and faltering in some way. And like that dear priest, they need to hear us say their parts for them until they can come in again. When they forget their parts, we say them for them until they can join in again. And our little voices in this grand room are just a tiny part of who is joining us in worship today. We are joined by a much greater 
larger cloud of witnesses than we have ever imagined. That one that the therefore in our passage is actually there for. If we are concerned with uh, worship being relevant to our generation, we have to be just as concerned that it recognizes the generations in faith that are worshiping here with us, surrounding us in this great cloud. Named specifically in the context, but I didn't make Sam read for you, that entire chapter of Hebrews 11, names like Abraham and Sarah, Moses and Jacob, David, even the prostitute Rahab, now that's an inclusive church, names like Gideon and Samson and all the prophets, not just the major ones, but the minor ones too. Talk about living worship. They're all here worshiping with us. To know if we're being authentic when we lift our voices in worship means we have to recognize that that great cloud of witnesses also means that we're together here at this table today with Christians from all places scattered wide around the world today, places like those that Dr. Tennant mentioned in his address yesterday, the ones in the middle of nowhere reaching unreached people groups, the ones gathered in megachurches in Korea, the ones facing persecution in places like India and Iran and Syria, they are all worshiping with us too. Worship is authentic when it echoes the voices of nations that is, are the great cloud of witnesses. It's authentic when it breaks all barriers of time and place for us. One pastor described inviting his congregation uh, to the communion table one Sunday by reminding them of the communion of saints, that all of those who were dead and had been born again in Christ and were living were present with them at the table, feasting with them that day, the communion of the saints as we commune together. And when he finished the liturgy, invited his people forward to come. One family, a dad and two older children, rushed forward from the back, too eager to get to the table to even wait in line, await their turn. And he later found out that years before, they had lost their mother, his wife. And they realized, in his words, that they could actually be closer to her that day. as She was feasting at the table with them. Friends, this is a long table. There are a lot of people seated around it with you. Worship becomes bigger than us when we say the words of the Apostles' Creed with believers all the way back to the Apostles and before, promising with them that we believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting that they are experiencing even now. Worship is bigger than us when we reach out to those believers suffering persecution around the world, when we hear the words, the Lord be with you, and we call out to them across oceans with a voice of hope, and also with you, they're here with us. This is the great cloud of witnesses. They're here in this very room surrounding us and cheering us on, lamenting with us, laying our hearts in submission at the foot of the cross. Christians all around the world, all throughout time, in this room, in this great cloud. And I've heard people describe worship as a chance to get alone with God for a while. But in actuality, when we worship, this is a very, very crowded place. Once you see them worshiping all around you, you can't unsee it. Seminary is going to ruin some things for you. And one of them is that worship is not just about you and Jesus anymore. 
Hebrews 12 has some powerful things to say about you, that you should throw off every hindrance, the sin that entangles you so easily, that you should run with perseverance, the race set before you, that you should fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But it says that none of these is possible until you get this. Therefore, you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. That's when you can do these things. And the picture of that race described in Hebrews 12, it's often um, given to us as a metaphor for a marathon or a race that we run together. In some ways, that's a beautiful picture. There are some great uh, things to say about that. One of them is the great story of the first modern Olympics in Athens in 1896. When the winner of the marathon, the about-to-be winner of the marathon, was running a great race. When the stadium of onlookers where the finish line was located heard that even miles away, uh, the clear front runner, the one who would win, was one of their own, a Greek. They were very excited about that. So in their excitement, many of them poured out of the stadium and ran with him in the final miles, almost crowding the course too much for him to push through and finish. And so passing the crowds leading up to that stadium, the winner entered the stadium to deafening sounds of cheers. And then get this, both the crown prince and the prince of Greece jumped down from the royal box and ran across the finish line with him. And then they picked him up and carried him in triumph up to the royal box with them. Write that one down, that'll preach. But instead of a race, the image that's been in my mind all week for this great cloud is the image of refugees in crisis around the world. We are currently witnessing the greatest refugee crisis since World War II. More than 11 million people displaced from their homes by unspeakable violence. And there are people without a home looking for a country. And many nations worried about what could happen when they open their doors to this great influx of people in crisis. Many of them have shut their borders, declaring that those people are not welcome. But this week, a tiny glimmer of hope, just a drop in the bucket of what needs to be done. Some countries open their borders to large crowds of refugees. And when they arrived, they were met by crowds of people greeting the trains and the buses at the stations. These weren't protesters carrying signs telling them to go home. This was a great cloud of welcomers carrying signs that said things like, welcome refugees and welcome home handing out water and food and hugs and breaking out into applause as each group got off the bus or the train in recognition that this group had run a race far more difficult than any marathon we could ever try to run. These crowds were a great cloud of witnesses. It's happening even right now. And it gave me some spark of imagination of what heaven might end up being like. I thought to myself, when I get off the bus in heaven, what will the crowds be chanting? What signs will they hold up? Who will be there to greet me? And then I remembered that we don't have to wait. That the kingdom has broken in around us even as we wait for it to be here already. 
that when you walk in these doors to worship in this room, Revelation says that there is a door standing open to heaven, welcoming us around the throne, where we get to bow with elders and creatures and angels who worship all day long in every tongue, inviting us to join in. The great cloud is here, not just there. And this room is thick with God's presence and theirs. They're waiting for you to join in, to open your eyes and see them. But beware, once you see it, you're not going to be able to unsee it. Beware, because once you see it, worship will never be the same. Worship used to be about you and God meeting one-on-one during those songs where the lyrics really touch your heart and describe your situation. And, And it still is. I pray that you will connect with God here as if meeting one-on-one and do work with your soul. But I also pray that at some point your eyes will be open and you will see that you are just a tiny raindrop in a great cloud of witnesses hurtling from heaven to earth, calling out with the voices of the ages, holy, holy, holy. Uh, We have to worship in this place, not just because we need it, although we do desperately, but because God loves it and because the condition of our world demands it. And when we worship, we are speaking these great historic words of truth over a world that has slipped into a spiritual Alzheimer's condition, forgetting the face of the one who made them, singing these words of truth over a church that seems to be suffering from a kind of doctrinal dementia until they can sing them again. When we come to the table this morning, I want to encourage you to speak loudly, to respond with resounding voices, not just for yourself, but loud enough for the world to hear, because you're not just the ones running the race this morning. Welcome to the cloud. You are the ones holding the signs with the embraces and the words of welcome. You're the ones reaching out through worship to a world of aliens and exiles, speaking words of truth that invite them to come home, and saying the words for a faltering world that has forgotten their part until they can join us again.